The Health and Human Services Department has launched a new challenge. It seeks what it calls community-level solutions for health inequities. Prizes will total a million dollars. And for how it works, we turn to the interim director of the HHS Office of Environmental Justice, Dr. Sharonda Buchanan. Dr. Buchanan, good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, tell us what you're trying to achieve here with this Challenge Prize program. We really here at the Office of Environmental Justice want to be a resource to communities. For far too long, many disadvantaged communities and tribes have faced the brunt of environmental injustices, including harms to climate change. Many of your listeners may be aware of the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Um, These are the kinds of injustices and issues and harms that communities have been needing to actually address in their communities for a very, very long time. And so this Office of Environmental Justice that was established last year really want to be a resource to communities to help them to address these injustices. We say that climate change is an effect multiplier. It exacerbates many of these environmental burdens and environmental hazards that communities have been exposed to and had to contend with for a very very long time. So the challenge is a chance for community and tribal voices to share their own approaches in improving public health, reducing pollution, and addressing local climate change impacts. Well, give us an example of like where a climate change, say things are getting warmer and there's greater flood possibilities in some areas or whatever the case might be. Give us an example of how that might affect a particular area or a particular group of people more than others, say, in adjacent areas. I want to give you an example of Loudons County. It's a county in Alabama that have been plagued with water infrastructure problems. I mean, there's water sewage, et cetera, you know, sort of in backyards, in front yards. You know, when there are climate change issues and flooding issues, it will exacerbate something of that sort. So water infrastructure is very, very important, and it's important for folks to have clean water to actually sort of live in a health and equitable manner. I always like to say that health equity, as we pursue health equity and environmental justice, those two things are inextricably linked. So again, we want to hear from communities. Communities have their own challenges, and they know some of their solutions to them. So we want to uplift those voices with this challenge. And how does the challenge work? That is, suppose let's take that same county as an example. They have problems where their freshwater system is in danger of being contaminated by their wastewater system, and that can be exacerbated by floods and so forth, which moves things around in a way you don't want to. What could be some possible solutions, and who locally might be able to do that? And if they felt they could, what would they do in relation to this particular challenge? The challenge actually has two phases. All eligible entries will be evaluated and separate prizes will be awarded for each of the two phases. So for phase one, it will focus on design of an innovative concept to enhance community-driven efforts to mitigate health disparities and, of course, to advance health equity or the development of an effective approach. You know, there's also going to be phase two, which consists of small-scale testing or implementation of a well-developed approach for a community-led effort to mitigate, of course, the health disparities and advance health equity as well. I want to just sort of pause here and mention for your listeners that we just launched this challenge September 18, 2023, and we'll be receiving and taking in entries through January 30, 2024. And for entries in phase two, that will begin in 2024. So we want participants, and this is open to individuals, community-based organizations, tribes, tribal organizations, local state governments. I mean, it is really open. 
for-profit, non-profit communities, if you will, because they know their issues best. So we want to uplift those voices as they provide solutions. We are speaking with Dr. Sharonda Buchanan. She's Interim Director of the Office of Environmental Justice at the Health and Human Services Department. And some of the problems here, whether it's maybe buying air conditioners, you know, often impoverished areas suffer the heat worse than the wealthier areas simply because of lack of air conditioning. But fixing that is real money. I mean, the Congress appropriated a trillion dollars not long ago for infrastructure. Can the prize winners be eligible for funding at the grant level to actually carry out programs that are going to be a lot more expensive than the prize money will yield? So the challenge itself is a little bit different from what I think you are referring to as sort of our traditional way of funding communities. I mean, this is a way to really get into the hands of, like I said, individuals or community-based organizations or, you know, a group of entities, if you will, to really think about how they can sort of provide a solution to their own issues. We're hoping to accomplish, again, and find out sort of what the goals are of each of those communities, and they provide those solutions, if you will. It's one part of our multi-pronged approach to promoting health equity and environmental justice for all. I also want to say that, you know, in terms of meeting our goals here to be a resource to those communities, this is just one thing that we could do to really sort of help address those issues. You know, the traditional, I would say, sort of funding challenges are just that. Again, but this is a way to make it easier for communities to really sort of get the money into the hands of those that have solutions for themselves. And a million dollars won't go very far, and you're probably getting a lot of entries because the problems are just manifest all over the place. I mean, the country has a serious situation going here. Is this going to be one of many, do you think, or how do you see this long term? We here at the Office of Environmental Justice, we're small, but environmental justice is really a priority for us. It's a priority for, of course, the administration. It's a priority for our Secretary uh, for Health, as well as our Assistant Secretary. So we're using partnerships like this one to get the job done and get, again, funding into the hands of communities. I mentioned that we have a larger sort of prong approach to really making sure that we're addressing environmental injustices. And this is just one part of our approach to doing that. And in looking at the entries that come in for funding and people that want to develop things, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times here we've talked about the water situation or the air conditioning situation. There have been communities that have been harmed by highways, bifurcating them in overhead ramps and roadways, this kind of thing. Are you discovering new areas of environmental injustice that maybe you didn't even know about that are hitting people? We want, again, this to be wide open. I mean, again, there may be some novel new tool. That, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard about the Environmental Justice Index, the Climate and Justice Economic Screening Tool. Many communities are creating their own tools, et cetera. You know, we're looking for creation of new tools to help identify and help to be an answer to some of these solutions. It could be an already existing, I'm going to say, a tool or device or something that's already created that you can use in a new or novel way to address an environmental health injustice. So again, we're uh, we're open, we're excited that folks are already starting to think about, you know, what they might be able to provide in terms of an entry for this challenge. And so again, we're just you know, excited and looking forward to all of what's going to come in uh, to support community level solutions. 
It sounds like, though, it's an information-gathering exercise almost for HHS, as well as a way of helping the communities that get this money and get these ideas established. We want to be able to find out what these solutions are, and we can share those across just the nation, if you will, across the department, across the nation. Um, There are many other opportunities, and really our goal is to uplift the ideas, share them nationally, and connect them to opportunities and resources across the federal government. One thing I want to say is that this challenge is in keeping with one of our core EJ principles. You know, when you think about environmental justice, you know, we want to make sure that we're meaningfully engaging with communities and working alongside of them to address environmental injustices. So that's what this office wants to do, again, to be a resource for those communities. And this challenge will best allow us to hear and learn from communities who have local solutions to local problems. And who does the evaluation, by the way, and what are the basic criteria? So we are going to have judges, if you will. Of course, participants cannot be judges or they cannot be related in any way, of course, to judges. And we're going to look outside of ourselves, outside of the department again, to have judges to come in and look at these. Of course, no conflict of interest. We're making this very simple. Entries uh, are going to be anywhere from three to six pages. I mean, none of this long, drawn out, you know, multifaceted pages or many pages. It's just a novel concept, a novel approach, a novel idea, the development of a novel tool to really think about how you address issues within your own communities or with a community that is near you or with a community that you know about that really will help to advance health equity and promote justice for these communities. So really then a participant could be a giant engineering firm that has big giant contracts with New York City, but maybe they've got a really innovative low-cost way that they could help some small borough somewhere. Well, we'll be looking at everybody that submits an entry to the challenge. Again, we are looking and focused on, I'd say, community-led solutions, if you will. So that's how it works. How many awards and how much in the first round? And then what comes to those that make it to the second round? Great. As mentioned earlier, the challenge has two phases with, of course, a total prize of a million dollars. Phase one will focus on design of concept or development of approach and uh, up to 12 submissions may be selected to receive a prize of up to $25,000. Phase two will focus on small scale testing or implementation and up to 10 submissions may be selected for each to receive a minimal prize of $70,000. Dr. Sharonda Buchanan is Interim Director of the Office of Environmental Justice at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about the challenge program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is 
And, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it, and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.